Good evening, everybody. It's Stefan Molyneux from Free Domain Radio. I have, for the second time, Dr. Dan Edmonds, uh, affiliated with the International Center for Humane Psychiatry. No, it's not the oxymoron you're thinking of. And the American, uh, you, sorry, European American uh, University. Thank you so much, uh, Dan, for taking the time today. Yes, thank you. So, uh, you wrote recently on your blog, I mean, there's sort of two things that I'd, I'd like to chat about. Some of the skepticism that seems to be growing or mounting with regards to the medical biochemical model uh, of uh, what has become modern psychiatry. Uh, you have written uh, recently uh, recent statements from the National Institutes of Mental Health, in which mental health funding will not rely on the DSM-5 and the British Psychological Association's Clinical Psychology Division suggesting that we need to look at poverty, oppression, and abuse. So I was wondering if you could talk a little bit. There seems to be a lot of skepticism about DSM-5, a lot of stuff in the popular literature about how it seems to pathologize everything from you know, nail-biting to thumb-sucking <laughs> to watching too much uh, TV or, or spending too much time on the Internet. Uh, it seems like few of us are going to escape the mental uh, health uh, problems net, uh, but there does seem to be a skepticism that's arising with that. I wonder if you could uh, comment on that. Right. Well, what I see happening with each edition of the DSM is this process where just basic human experience is now being looked upon in a pathological way, and it's and it's gradually increasing. Where I'm convinced that at some point in time probably every person could be labeled with some supposed disorder. Um, but I do think that there are some, particularly coming from more of the humanistic uh, side of things in psychology, that, that are beginning to really challenge that and say, okay, let's really look at this a minute. And we, there's so many other factors that... Uh, so we do have to look at poverty. We do have to look at oppression. We have to look at the experience of, of the individual as a whole and, and look at them not necessarily as a pathology, but uh, a simple, sometimes just a simple reaction to the environments that uh, they're in. Yeah. It, it also seems to me that there are a few things that if we're going to start looking at pathological human behavior, it seems these sort of typical middle-class neuroses, not to say that all of them are, but a lot of the new ones seem to be. And, of course, stuff which I, at least as an amateur, would recognize as the effects of, of poverty and, and oppression and abuse. But if we look at the major destruction that has occurred, just say over the last five years, in America, it has been warmongering and financial fraud, financial thumbjiggery, the psychotic destruction of 40% of America's wealth and the pursuit of massive corporate financial profits. I don't see any of that pathologized in the DSM-5. You know, capacity to wage oh, war without not. conscience, the capacity to destroy a nation's wealth without conscience. I mean, where's, where are the really important pathologies that are actually harming the world? They're not going to be there. And, and that's what I would argue, too, is that this biopsychiatric model um, allows for institutions and individuals to be exonerated. So they don't have to do anything to make any changes within the society at all because that's not where they're looking at the change needing to come from. Instead, 
blame the brain of the person and and say that all the other things that they may be experiencing are basically irrelevant. And that's the frustrating thing to to those of us. I, I assume that you're in this this camp. To those of us who are trying to point out that society is not very healthy. The frustrating thing about this expansion of diagnoses of mental illnesses, it, it's obviously tragic that people with legitimate suffering uh, and, and problems are being labeled with some pseudo-medical model and being hit with um, pretty brain-wrecking drugs. Right. And, but, but what it's really being... And they're being... Uh, go ahead. They're being told a lot of lies as well, and uh, there's very grim prophecies made to some individuals, particularly those that I've worked with that have gone through extreme states of mind. Usually they are told, well, you have something wrong with your brain and you're going to have to be a lifelong patient and you're going to have to take antipsychotic drugs forever. And so it's a very grim message that they're giving. But I have found in my work that it's very intense and it doesn't come overnight, but yes, these people do go from breakdown to breakthrough. It is possible. And these drugs don't have to be a part of the picture. The person doesn't have to be on them lifelong. I, I've seen that happen. Right. And, and what, what is, to me, being diagnosed that is even more fundamentally wrong is when we label huge amounts of people as mentally ill and give them huge amounts of drugs, I think what is the hidden diagnosis is that we're saying society is sane. Like a failure to conform with society is a mental illness. A failure to conform with um, the, the moral norms, if we can put it that way, of society is, is a problem. And that, because the problem is always heaped upon and always labeled at the person who is failing to conform to society, right. society is automatically defined as healthy. And that seems to me very much against the origins of, I mean, certainly the origins of self-knowledge as far back as Socrates 2,500 years ago. Socrates was routinely diagnosing an incredibly sick society. And if you look at Freud's uncovering of rampant sexual abuse in the Viennese bourgeoisie in the late 19th century, what seemed to be revealed was that people were sick because they were hammered at, abused, uh, thrown under the bus, uh, exploited or grew up with, with people who had very few resources or an excess of sadism or brutality, put in terrible schools, fed bad food, exposed to environmental toxins, and yet all of that vanishes. And we say, well, you see, they're biochemical imbalance, and what we need to do is keep hitting them with medication until they end up with a home, and we'll call that success. It's just mind-blowing. Right. And, and so it's, it's very interesting that, that they would even use the term recovery for those types of situations. And, and that's, that's what I find to be very sad is that um, those that get trapped into this model where they're basically told at best, if they have a mediocre job and they're maintained on these drugs and just basically getting by, that, that means that they have improved, that that's success. But I don't look at that as success at all. I think that, that the pe persons can go way beyond that, and I've seen that happen. Um, so, and it, it's interesting to look at too that the the person doing the diagnosing is 
automatically assume that they are in this role of being sane, that they are representing the, the society uh, almost as a priest in, in a way uh, representing the society. Yeah, I mean, it's fairly clear if you look at something like the Salem witch hunts, right, in, in Massachusetts, that it, the, the problem was not with, with witches. Their problem was a profoundly uh, sick and fundamentalist uh, and superstitious society. Uh, and some environmental toxins have been sort of theorized as well as, as part of the issue. And it also has struck me that since there are quite a lot of people who abuse children in society, I mean, even if we just take the legal definition, I, I sort of go a lot further and I think that uh, spanking and is abusive, and, and uh, I think there's lots of good uh, data to support that in terms of its negative effects on, on children. Uh, things like, uh, you know, putting kids of babies of three months old um, uh, into daycare for 30 plus hours a week, I consider that to be, it's not abusive like people are trying to be mean, it's just the effects tend to be uh, extremely destructive. But even if we just take the standard definition of child abuse, there are a lot of people out there, sadly abusing their children. And it would seem to me that psychiatry, the medical model, I shouldn't say all of psychiatry, the medical model extends a huge blanket, a huge camouflage, a huge cover for these people. Because if a lot of emotional and psychological dysregulation arises from child abuse, not all, but a lot, then the medical model exonerates and, and covers up as a camouflage for the people who are harming children uh, by pointing out that, uh, well, it's just like diabetes. You know, it's not like, you know, being mean to your children produces oh, diabetes. Oh, absolutely. Yeah. And that's tragic. And, I mean, well, why, you, why would you want to do that? When you have these children that are often labeled with uh, so-called disruptive behavior disorders and so forth, many times that is what you are actually seeing happen, is that these are children who have been traumatized many times. These are children who have been mistreated and sometimes their families aren't even aware that they are mistreating them. But uh, instead of addressing those issues and saying, okay, there are these family dynamics that are very destructive. We need to be dealing with that. Instead, you have you set up a scapegoat. The child becomes the scapegoat. He's the one or she is the one who is labeled and, and becomes the focus of the so-called treatment. And oftentimes what I've found is that when you have a child who is labeled and then you begin to really examine the family, if anyone is disturbing, it's usually the other family members more so than the child. Well, and then any time the child says, like, raises a complaint about the way he or she is being treated, well, you know, you abandoned me, you hit me, you ignored me, or whatever, was molested by my third cousin or something like that, the family has this great excuse, which is, well, you know, but you have this mental disorder, you have this biochemical problem, so how can we take anything that you say seriously? I mean, it seems just a great way of really muzzling what I guess what people generally call the identified patient, right? The person who's acting out the family. Absolutely, muscles, absolutely. Muscles them. They can't speak now because they've been diagnosed with something biochemical and therefore their experience is invalidated almost by definition. Yeah, the, the whole experience is crushed. Basically, their whole soul is crushed and they have and anything that they say 
is a manifestation of that disorder that they supposedly have. So therefore, you know, they automatically everything becomes dismissed or looked down upon. Yeah. And there is a really fundamental question that is starting to be asked. I had uh, Robert Whitaker on the show, uh, author of um, uh, The Epidemic of Madness. I can't remember what it's called. But but B basically was pointing out, he said, well, the psychiatrists say that this these uh, SSRIs, these uh, psychotropic drugs, they are like insulin for diabetes. That's sort of their, you've got this problem, you're taking insulin for the rest of your life and so on. And this is why it's not a cure. It's, it's, it, it, insulin doesn't cure that. It just manages the symptoms, right? And so they don't, it's not a cure. You don't get better. It just manages the symptoms. But when insulin was introduced into the medical model, you know, deaths and problems from diabetes, you know, plummeted. People genuinely were able to productively manage their symptoms and they did not get worse. And as Robert Whitaker has pointed out repeatedly, since the introduction of these drugs, mental health problems have skyrocketed. Like, how is it possible if this is supposed to manage or cure something in the way that diabetes is managed or cured by insulin, or not cured, managed by insulin, then how is it possible that after the introduction of these drugs, you have a 10 or 20 fold that's, increase well, that's in correct, diagnosis and administration? There was, no, there was no imbalance to begin with. If, if any imbalance arose, it came from the drugs. Um, that's what we have to, to look at. And I, I find it interesting, too, that, that we have seen uh, a rise in violence and so forth. And if we explore and look at some of the folks responsible for these situations, now it's not to say that they may not have had some other issues going on, but, but it's interesting to look at that all of them were taking some type of psychiatric drug. Um, so I do believe that's something that we need to really begin to explore, is why is that? Right. And you, you have an example on your blog of, of, and if you could run through it, I think it would be helpful for people, how a child who is considered to be unruly uh, or disruptive, and there's been lots of theories as to why that may be happening. You know, increase in, in single-parent households means a decrease in attention towards children, lack of male role models, of course, in particular for boys' children, uh, for male children, for boys. And also, of course, the, the, there's been a sort of shift in the focus of education more towards what is generally perceived to be girls' needs and requirements, a little less outdoor activity, a little bit ha less hands-on, a little bit less active, and that can make uh, boys kind of twitchy uh, behind the desk all day. But uh, for, for whatever reason, uh, these, these, these diagnoses are are going through the roof, and uh, there doesn't seem to be much of a break, much of a, a sort of pause and consider, much of a, a deceleration in this process. And that, that just seems extraordinarily chilling that we are trying to – it's sort of a Soviet model of psychiatry. And Soviets would say, well, anybody who's not happy under communism, I mean, they must be insane because communism is perfect. Uh, and therefore they would you know, stuff them full of horse tranquilizers and stick them in some uh, mental health gulag. And it seems just a very, again, not to the same extreme, but it's a very similar philosophy. Well, there can't be anything wrong with society. There can't be anything wrong with families. Therefore, any, any dysfunction, uh, the only possibility that it can be is some imaginary illness. It's almost like with this, the new form of demonic possession. Right. And, and I, I see this, this happening time and time again. I remember talking just the other day with a teacher who was telling me that they had about 25 kids in the class. And 
she said that uh, there was nine of the 25 that were on some type of medication. And so that's a, that's a very high number. And com- probably in, in the situations as far as I've examined, that, that it's completely unnecessary to do this. Um, but it, it's maintenance and, and control um, and being able to subdue. So rather than getting to the roots of anything, it, it's much easier just to, to go through that process of, of subduing and, and just shutting down the entire experience of the individual. Yeah, I mean, of course, and it's always children who are the least least powerful members of society, the most helpless and dependent. And, I mean, a, a lot of... Right, and, and that, that's, that's always... That's always the saddest part is that is that the children themselves uh, have no ability to say no to these things, and and I've known of stories of that where children were complaining of side effects and saying that this makes me feel funny or uncomfortable or I'm not able to eat or I'm not able to sleep, but all of that becomes totally dismissed. Or the psychiatrist will instead just prescribe an additional drug to try to counteract the things that the child is complaining about. Right. Thus further getting um, more so, symptoms down the road, which require more medication. Right. So I, I, I've, given, I've given that example of how it starts out that maybe a kid is uh, in the classroom and being somewhat disruptive, so they put him on a stimulant. And so the stimulant begins to have some ticks and so forth, and uh, so they prescribe another drug. And then from there, maybe they see, okay, well, no, we're, we're beginning to see that there's emerging bipolar because his, his mood is, is off. So then they give him Depakote as a mood stabilizer. And then the combination of drugs can, and I've actually seen a known of folks where this has happened, that they actually begin to develop kind of a psychotic sort of situation. So then it becomes more drugs, Risperdal, whatever. So to the point where the person becomes completely unable to function. Yeah. Um, and, and when I say this, I, I, unfortunately, I think this is more common than, than what you would know. To see how that this situation of cocktails of drugs are created for children. Well, because they're not treating anything that is biologically detectable. You know that they keep coming up with these theories that are low serotonin, but it turns out to not. None of this does. No brain scan. No blood test. They're not. They're treating like a metaphor. And so, how do you treat a metaphor? No, there's there's none fire, of that. Yeah, you just fire medication at it until. I don't know, something happens, you know, making huge profits along the way. And this, this conflict of interest is something that I don't want to be, take over the show with a whole rant or anything, but this conflict of interest to me is something, you know, I worked for many years as an entrepreneur, and conflict of interest was something we had to take uh, very seriously. Inside a trading conflict of interest was very, very important to stay on the sunny side of ethics and the law in those issues. And when you start reading about the conflict of interest between the people defining mental illness and their direct financial relationships with the pharmaceutical companies that are manufacturing the drugs to treat these imaginary uh, ailments. It's, 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 it's deeply shocking to anybody with any ethical sense whatsoever. I think what was the entire, there was nobody on the board of the DSM-IV who didn't have direct financial ties to 
pharmaceutical companies who are being paid. Right. And there was, a, there was an FDA panel. Yeah. There was an FDA panel where the majority, I believe like 90% of those on the panel were had some type of ties to pharmaceutical companies. Now, I think the other thing that's important for people to look at too is, is to pay attention to the advertising that's out there. Um, they never say in the drug commercials that, uh, that this drug is definitely going to treat this chemical imbalance. It, say, it says that, it, that this particular disorder may be caused by a chemical imbalance, and it may do something for that because they don't know. They have nothing conclusive to prove that theory. But people, I don't think, often are tuning in to the language of uh, of the advertising. Yes, and, and the frustrating thing is that even if a conclusive proof were arrived at tomorrow, double-blind research, independently verified, replicatable around the world, even if some biochemical imbalance were detected tomorrow, there's absolutely no reason to believe that A, it was not caused by environment, and B, it would be treated by these medications. Uh, Gabor Mateo, as I'm sure you're aware, he's been on this show too, he talks quite extensively in, in the realm of hungry ghosts about the degree to which uh, brain chemistry is affected by a trauma and uh, you know, affection or the lack thereof, connection or the lack thereof. Well, I'd, I'd give an, an example. Yeah. I'd give an example in, in this area as well. It would be if I go to my physician and so the nurse measures my heart rate. And then the physician comes in unexpectedly and startles me and then measures my heart rate again and says, you know, you have heart disease. We would find that just bizarre. But that is kind of what is happening in psychiatry is uh, that a person is going through a traumatic event or some type of experience that is not pleasant. And so I look at it as that if there is any change physiologically or so forth, this is a normal reaction to what they are experiencing. But instead, they're labeling it, no, this is a disease. Right. Yeah, it's, it's, completely, uh, it's completely bizarre. And I, I really do believe that in the future they will look upon this as, in, in, a, in a strange way, even more dangerous than, you know, the, the ice therapies, the, the coma therapies, the electroshock therapies and so on that were going on in the 30s and 40s and 50s, they would look at this as more insidious and in many ways more dangerous because it's so plausible and it's so, quote, non-invasive and non-obvious and also because it's being applied to children who are fundamentally and functionally voiceless within our modern society. Uh, I think that people will look upon this as a, a, a truly horrific uh, interlude in uh, the, the the history of psychiatry. Uh, it's I think starting to emerge a little bit now, but uh, you know we've gone so well, far I think down it, this road. It's going to unfortunately, it's going to take a lot of time for that to arise, and and that's always the sad thing. That, for instance, in the age where lobotomy was being performed uh, quite a lot, it took about ten years before they realized how terrible a procedure this was. But at the same time, there you have 10 years of damage. Um, now, the other thing that I'll say is that other medical fields 
they create new drugs for existing diseases, whereas it seems that psychiatry today creates new diseases for existing drugs. Yeah. Huh. Right. Right. That, that is chilling. Now, if we can... Um, I, I could certainly rant about this until the cows came home, but uh, may not be specifically <laughs> enjoyable for everyone. But I wonder if we could shift a little bit, uh, and I, I will be a little quieter here because this is a realm I, I know very little about. But uh, the autism spectrum disorders that you work with so intimately, I know you've created a foundation to raise awareness and empathy toward, towards autistic, uh, th those who experience autistic symptoms. Can you tell us a little bit about what it is, your thoughts about the etiology and the best ways to uh, to help uh, people with this uh, spectrum of symptoms uh, to, to flourish and function within society? Well, the, the first thing that I will clarify, too, is that I don't look at autism as a disease at all. It, instead, I look at it as a mode of being. So it's an umbrella term that is simply describing how a person relates or does not relate to the world around them. So there could be a whole number of reasons why a person is autistic. So you may have a child who has cerebral palsy who is autistic. You may have other issues going on and they happen to be autistic. Um, what I see is the best approach is one that is based on relationship, where I'm not forcing them to enter my world. I'm trying to gain acceptance into theirs. Um, and so when I say this relational approach, I, I can kind of throw out an example because I think this was something that I thought was very powerful. Um, I once had a little five-year-old who... Um, he did not speak. So um, I prefer now to use the term pre-verbal rather than non-verbal because I see that some of these children are capable of uh, speaking with the right supports. So anyway, he comes in uh, to my office and he begins banging on the secretary's computer keyboard. So he's bang, bang, bang. Now in the center of the room, we had this ball pit and he used to really enjoy this. So the secretary was getting kind of annoyed with him. So I said, oh, I'll just let him go, let him go. So I told, I told him, I said, if you keep doing that, I'm going to scoop you up and I'm going to throw you into the ball pit. So that's what I do. I pick him up and I throw him in. He giggles and he laughs and so forth. And he comes back again. And this time he doesn't hit the keyboard. He just puts his hand towards it, smirks, and then falls back into my arms. And so I take him and I throw him back in again. That time he gets out and actually tells me to do it again. And it's the first time that he had ever used any language at all. So it was just the process of that connection that was made with him. Um, so I, I think that's where the focus should be. Now, the common thing that uh, is utilized is this applied behavior analysis. And that tends to be uh, where, particularly with state funding and so forth, that's all they want to fund. And it's a very rigid uh, 
process where the child really can go on for like 40 hours a week of very just intensive, repetitive drills. And to me, I find that rather degrading and dehumanizing at times. Um, it's not to say that there are not certain skills that can be taught, but I, I think that they're having this relational approach is, is far is a far better way to be able to, to, to transfer those skills to these uh, persons. Right, right. And do you have any thoughts about where these, I mean, I guess, non-standard behaviors may be coming from? Um, well, what gives me an example specifically is, is to, to which you are referring to. Well, I mean, some of the um, maybe some of the OCD aspects of of autism, or so the nonverbal, or I guess what is considered to be the hyperstimulation of the senses that is associated with the autism. Well, like I said, I think that there could be a whole number of of uh, things that could be going on. Um, sometimes there there are actual medical causation that that leads to the development of sensory issues and. Uh, so forth, I've noticed some children that, that uh, have a very high pain tolerance and all of that. Um, the things that we would label as meltdowns are usually often triggered by the sensory input. So what I've noticed for autistic kids is that I think that they tend to be far more sensitive to the environment around them. So they're absorbing all of this up and then it just leads them to overwhelm. And so the behaviors that, uh, that are difficult to usually are coming out because of that, that overwhelm that they're experiencing. Right. And uh, so uh, is there also, I've heard sort of various stories about the degree to which uh, people with autistic type symptoms or children with autistic type symptoms might might be masking some extraordinary intellectual abilities uh, or um, people, I mean, some people say, well, they generally have below average cognitive abilities and other people say, well, there is the opportunity or possibility of very high cognitive abilities. Um, and, and I know you've written to say, but it's not, it's not cognitively based. It shouldn't be cognitively biased when we're looking at these no, people. No, and, and I always, I have always presumed intellect whenever I have dealt with any autistic individual. Um, and even if they are not able to speak, we have to look at the behavior as a form of communication. So sometimes the way they are behaving is telling us something that either they're in distress or they have a need or whatever. But uh, it does not mean that they are necessarily lacking in intellect at all. And what I do find is uh, usually you do have um, where you have these social type of deficits, but there is usually one thing that, uh, or talent that they have that, that they are very gifted in. And I, I, have, I have found that many times over. Um, and oftentimes there are things that, uh, that they may have as like special interests that, that do become kind of an obsessive sort of thing. Um, and sometimes some unusual, um, aspects of, of those special interests. Um, I had one uh, fellow that I worked with that is a teenager 
And fortunately, through the whole process, he ended up actually getting a master's degree in video production. But the the process that we did, because initially when he was a teenager, he had some quirky little habits, and one of them was to collect lamb chop puppets. So he had like 50 or so of these lamb chop puppets all in his, scattered in his room, and he would make these videos. And that was an interesting part of the work with him too, is that his family and others were really not understanding what these videos were about. They just thought, okay, it's just random stuff with lamb chop puppets, and that's kind of strange. So I began to explore that with him, and I found out that as different things happen in his life, sometimes good, sometimes bad, he would act these scenarios out through the videos and through the puppets. So it was his way of coping. Now, he later began to do other types of videos, and he was that, that was his obsession. He was fascinated by videos. So I began to think about that. I'm thinking, okay, how can we channel this into something that's actually going to work for him? So he was a, he did very well academically. So once he graduated high school, I suggested to him and I said, I will help you out to get into a college program. And I said, why don't you consider doing something in this video realm? Well, that's exactly what he did. And he's very gifted in that. So that's been part of my focus in my work too, is, is to focus on strengths to help these folks be able to find their niche. Um, Cause I, I think that's part of the problem too, is that uh, you have these programs that automatically look at autistic people as that they are defective and we need to alter them and change them. Even if that's by force or coercion that we have to make them into this so-called normal person, whatever that may be. Right. And um, with, uh, as opposed to being curious and exploring the individual possibilities, uh, there, there's kind of always there seems to be an arrogance on the part of a lot of mental health professionals in that, you know, society's normal, we're normal, and deviations, we shouldn't be curious about them. We shouldn't look and see if there's something to be offered to society that these people can see. Uh, it's just like, well, we just, we got we to gotta get them in the box. We got to, you know, all that kind of stuff. Right, and, and, I, and I find that to be a very sad thing, that, that many of these individuals uh, are looked down upon. They are, uh, I've even seen uh, folks that uh, have even said that they were not fully human. That's actually been said to me. Um, so, but I, I find that uh, with a respectful, compassionate, way of interaction that, that you can, these folks can do brilliant things. And, and, and I think that we need to be embracing the diversity and, and understanding them better rather than, than having these attitudes that, that they have to be altered Yes, or I that they are broken or defective. Yeah, I certainly think that would be the case. I mean, all paradigms are overthrown in society. The, you know, the free market of ideas is constantly casting down new idols, uh, casting down old idols and bringing up new ones. And the idea that we've finished that and have somehow achieved perfection, uh, to me, is a kind of insanity. 
that I think is only going to continue to harm those who don't fit into the existing delusions, but hopefully are getting a little closer to the truth themselves. Um, all people who advance society are considered insane <laughs> at one point or another and probably seen that way to most people. And uh, I hope that this helps people to understand that there are different ways of thinking, different ways of being that we can learn a lot from and shouldn't necessarily just instantly pathologize uh, with the arrogance of we're, we're okay and any deviations are problematic. Right. Now, you have uh, a, a great blog. I wonder if you uh, could – I know it's on Psychology Today. If you could just remind people of, of how to get your, uh, your writings and also any other ways that you would like for uh, my listeners and watchers at least to be able to, to get in touch with you or, or read what it is that you're producing. Okay, well, the blog on psychology today um, is titled Extreme States of Mind. So if you search for that at Psychology Today, you can find that. And then I'm also listed on selfgrowth.com, which has uh, some prior interviews, articles, etc. Um, so folks can uh, just search for my name under that site and, and the information will come up. And very consistently enjoyable stuff comes out of you from Facebook as well. It's always um, uh, something to think about, stuff that makes you go, hmm, in a very good way. So if you wanted to check out uh, Dr. Edmonds on Facebook as well, we'll uh, link to that as well. Uh, of course, I hugely appreciate your time tonight. Thank you so much. And, of course, thank you so much for translating some of this arcane stuff into uh, material which is accessible to you know idiot lay people like myself. It's <laughs> hugely appreciated. So thank you so much, Dr. Edmonds. Really, really appreciate your time. Yes, thank you. Take care.